Take a Bible if you want to get a head start. The first passage that we're going to look at this morning is Mark chapter 7. I'm going to put a number of scriptures up on the screen and you can track along with us as we move through the message this morning. Mark 7 will be the first that we look at. This Sunday is the halfway point in our Sunday morning series, Deadly, where we're talking about the seven deadly sins. In previous weeks, we talked about greed, gluttony, and sloth. This morning, we're going to talk about lust, and in the weeks ahead, we'll talk about wrath, envy, and pride. One of the things that I've shared with you each week is that this particular grouping is not a biblical grouping. All of these sins are biblical in the sense that they are found in the Bible. The Bible condemns these sins. It talks about these sins. It warns us about these sins. But this group of sins as a group is something that's developed throughout church history. And we've talked about some of the people who have played a role in that. We talked about Evagrius of Pontus. Evagrius went out to the wilderness. He was escaping the sin and the corruption of the world. And he found himself all alone with sin in his heart. And he talked about evil thoughts. And he had a list that was very similar to our seven deadly sins. We talked about Pope Gregory. Calvin, uh, John Calvin said that Pope Gregory was the last good pope, and Pope Gregory grouped these sins together and called them capital sins, meaning they're conditions of the heart that result in sinful behavior. It's not so much what we do or don't do, but it's who we are as people that then plays out into the way that we live our lives. Last week, I told you about a 15th century Dutch painter named Hieronymus Bosch and his painting, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Last Four Things. The seven sins are in this wheel, and at the center of that wheel, there is an eye. It's representative of God's eye, and it's a reminder that God sees our sin, that nothing that we do is hidden from him. Even the condition of our heart is not unseen by God. This morning I want to tell you about an Italian poet named Dante. He lived in the 1300s. He wrote a poem titled The Divine Comedy. The poem has three parts. Part one is titled Hell. Part two is titled purgatory. Part three is titled paradise. And in that portion of the poem that talks about purgatory, he depicts purgatory as a mountain that people have to climb up. And there are seven levels on this mountain, each level represented by one of the seven deadly sins. Now, Dante was a good Catholic. We are good Protestants. So we hear this idea of purgatory and we understand that is an extra biblical teaching. It is not a doctrine or an idea that you can find in the pages of Scripture. In fact, we would say as Protestants, the, the doctrine of purgatory, the idea of purgatory is actually contradictory to what we find in the pages of the Scriptures as it talks about heaven and hell. We would reject this idea that there is a place that certain people go when they die. They don't go to hell, they don't go to heaven, but they go to purgatory and they pay for their sins. We would say rightly, that's not a biblical idea and that contradicts what we believe about salvation, what the Bible clearly teaches about salvation, which is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not our good works, and it's in Jesus alone. In his 
finished, perfect, complete work on the cross is enough to save sinners from all of their sins. There's nothing left for the Christian that they will have to pay for when they pass from this life to the next. What we do believe is that we have a sin problem. We are sinful people. And in this series, what we're trying to do is talk honestly about sin. What does the Bible say about sin? And it's not so that we walk away on Sunday afternoon and we feel lousy and miserable and just worthless. It's so that we walk away on a Sunday honest about who we are, honest about the things we do, the things we say, honest about who we are on a heart level, and desperate for the grace of God that is available in Jesus Christ. So we're going to start this morning with something pretty basic as we think about sin. This is from a pastor named Andrew Goldsmith. He says, every sin, and it's easy to see with each of the seven deadly sins, takes something good and distorts it. In a sense, that is the nature of sin. Satan is not creative in the the idea or in the sense that he comes up with stuff on his own. He just takes stuff that God has come up with and he twists it and he perverts it. That's the idea behind the Hebrew word awan. In English, you would spell it A-W-O-N, awan. We use, in our English translations of the Bible, the word iniquity. It's taking something good and twisting it and perverting it so that it's no longer good. It's actually wicked and ugly. That's the nature of sin. And if that's the nature of sin, we've got to understand when it comes to lust, what is this good baseline, this good idea that Satan has taken or that our lust has taken and twisted. And you find that good guideline, that good baseline in the opening pages of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. The pinnacle of his creation was human beings. People, male and female, created in his image. And the categories of humanity that God created in the beginning it was a binary option, male and female. That was it. And he created male and female, both in his image, in his likeness. God created marriage. And he instituted marriage as a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman, one male and one female. And God designed that the consummation of that marriage would be the physical union of male and female. And you can see in our anatomy how God designed all of this to work. It's very, very obvious. God designed that this consummation of marriage, this physical union, would typically result in children, which are to be seen as a blessing from God. And God designed that the consummation of the marriage relationship, the physical union of male and female, would involve pleasure. We understand this. We understand that there's a reason that the world is obsessed with sex. It's not a coincidence. It's partly how God designed all of it to work. In fact, there's a book in the Bible. The whole book, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, is dedicated to celebrating and talking about how great it is that God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman and the consummation of that marriage and all that goes along with it. It's a celebration of God's good design. We're talking about lust. Lust takes that good design and twists it, perverts it. 
it changes it from what God intended it to be into something different altogether. It takes something good and it turns it into wickedness, into iniquity. Here's a definition of lust that we're going to work off of this morning. This is in your notes if you like to track along, if you like to fill in blanks. Here we go. Lust is a disordered and idolatrous desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. The virtue that we would seek in place of this vice is chastity. Now, I'll give you a minute to fill those in if you like to take notes, and I'll just talk about each of the, the words here, each of the pieces. Lust is a disordered and idolatrous desire. The desire for marriage, the desire for intimacy is not sinful, but lust twists it and perverts it, and it takes a good thing and makes it an ultimate thing. It's disordered. It's put it all out of place. It's idolatrous. It's dishonoring to the object of our lust. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's dishonoring to the one that we're lusting after. It completely disregards God. It rejects any notion that he has a design in male, female, marriage, procreation, sex, all of it. And what we seek instead of this sin is chastity. For an unmarried person, that means abstinence. For a married person, that means faithfulness in your marriage relationship. That's the baseline definition that we're working off of this morning. I don't think that in the year 2020 in the United States of America, I need to spend any time convincing you that this is a problem in our society. I don't think I need to convince you of that. I think anyone who has eyes to see what is obviously true can look around the United States in the year 2020 and say, we have a lot of problems, and this is one of them. I want you to just think with me why this is such a common problem. We could, we could make a long list. I just want to give you a few thoughts. Number one, this is a common problem. Lust is a common problem because our hearts are sinful. The temptation with all of these sins, especially lust, is to say, as Christian people, the problem is out there. Those people are the problem. And let's be honest, there are problems out there. But where Jesus would have a start is not pointing a finger, but looking in the mirror. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him or her. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You see several of the seven deadly sins in that list. You see lust represented multiple times. Jesus says in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. At the end of the day, we have to be willing to take responsibility for our sin and say, the problem is my heart, my sinful, wicked, twisted heart. It's not just an out there problem, it's a me problem. All of these things come from the human heart. We have to take responsibility for our lust. Secondly, why is it a common problem? I would point you to the worldview of secularism. And I would make these observations. Secularism encourages us to root our identity in our sexuality, and it celebrates every expression of sexuality. So 
So as a worldview, secularism is a way of looking at life, a way of looking at the world where God is completely disregarded. Take God out of the equation, then you figure everything else out. That's secularism. And the secular worldview that is growing today says you should find your identity, who you are as a human being, in your strongest sexual urges. That's where you are told, according to a secular worldview, to find your identity. And you are encouraged, and I would even go farther than encouraged and say you are expected and demanded to celebrate every conceivable possible expression of sexuality and to say not only that it's valid, but to say that it's good. That's the cultural air that we breathe day in and day out. Your identity is to be found in what you desire sexually, and any expression of sexuality is something that you ought to applaud and view as good. The whole thing's a lie. Brian Hedges makes this observation. He says, one of the enemy's lies is that you can't have a full, satisfying life without sexual fulfillment. It's a lie from the enemy. You and I know it's a lie because there was one one righteous person who has ever walked the earth and he did not live out his sexuality. I don't care what you hear on the History Channel about Jesus. I don't care what the scholars in the Jesus Seminar say about Jesus. I don't care what people like Dan Brown put in their novels about Jesus. Jesus lived a celibate life. He did not express his sexuality. Did he lack anything? Was he incomplete as a person? Would anyone want to say that Jesus of Nazareth failed to live up to his human potential? We wouldn't say any of those things. And yet that's the lie that secularism tells us. You can't be happy unless you live out all of these desires. One last thought. Our lives are largely lived on social media. It's part of the answer of why this is such a common problem. And in this series, I really don't want to bludgeon social media every single week. But I'm going to bludgeon social media every single week and point out the obvious that it is not helpful when it comes to the sin that lives in our hearts. I'm not telling you to close all your social media accounts. I'm just telling you to be aware of what's going on in the real world or in the social media world. The Bible warns us against talking about the good old days. So let's not talk about the good old days. Let's just talk about the old days. In the old days, if a person wanted to satisfy his or her lust, you typically had to go out of your way, out into public to some degree to satisfy it. You no longer have to do that in the year 2020. You can do it right from the privacy of your own screen held in your own hand. And if you're on social media, let's just be honest enough to admit that you can certainly search things out, but even if you don't, they will search you out. It's not a neutral platform. There are people who mean you harm on a spiritual level, and this issue will find you out. You've got to be aware of that. 
And you've got to be aware that this is a deadly sin. It's so common in the United States of America in 2020, we just laugh at it. We find it as means of entertainment, on TV shows, on movies, on streaming services, on social media. We just laugh at it. We think it's humorous. We think it's entertaining. The reality is it's deadly. I want you to understand why this is a deadly sin. Number one, most basically, lust is idolatry. It is idolatry, a form or a manifestation of idolatry. I'll quote Brian Hedges one more time. He says, getting right to the point, lust is the idolatry of sex. It's looking to sex to make you whole, complete, happy, content. It's asking sex to give you what only God can give you. Most basically, that's idolatry, looking to anyone or anything other than God to do for you what only God can do for you. It's idolatry. I would encourage you to look up the verses I've listed for you in Romans and 1 Peter. Paul and Peter seem to say something interesting in those passages. They seem to suggest that idolatry itself actually leads to a furtherance of lust in our lives and in our hearts. That it's like a two-way street. That when you're guilty of the sin of lust, you're actually guilty of idolatry. And when you're guilty of idolatry, it actually results in more lust in your heart. It's a deadly loop. It's a downward spiral that can trap you. Why is it deadly? Secondly, it dehumanizes people. People who were created in the image of God, it is dehumanizing to people. One, it's dehumanizing to the object that we lust after. I would ask you to think about the Old Testament story in 2 Samuel 13 about David's son Amnon and Tamar. The story begins by telling you that Amnon loved Tamar. He loved her. When you read it in the Bible, you should read that word love with air quotes. He loved her. He lusted after her. He manipulated her and set her up. He took advantage of her. He hurt her. And at the end of the story, in verse 15, it says, he hated her. He did not treat her as a human being created in the image of God. He treated her as an object for his gratification. It was completely dehumanizing of that woman. Lust also dehumanizes the one who does it, the one who's guilty of lust. The book of Proverbs chapter 7 actually says that if you take lust in your heart and you tease it out and you chase it out all the way to its end, the book of Proverbs says you are like an ox being led to slaughter. You're like an animal just walking along thinking everything's fine and it's going to kill you. Lust dehumanizes people. Thirdly, why is it deadly? It's adultery of the heart. Adultery of the heart. Look at what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's not say what Jesus didn't say. Jesus did not say lust is exactly the same as adultery. Jesus did not say, if you lust, you might as well go ahead and commit adultery because you're already guilty. He's not saying that the the severity of these two things is exactly the same. He's not saying the consequence of these two things is the same. He is saying, make no mistake about it, 
lust is a violation of the seventh commandment, the commandment that prohibits adultery. It's a violation of that commandment. Maybe not where everyone can see it. Maybe not where the consequences are widespread. But it's a violation of that commandment in your heart. It's sin. It's not something to laugh at. It's not something to pat yourself on the back about and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. It's sin. It's adultery of the heart. Why is it deadly? Number four, it leads to other sins and ultimately to death. Lust is a sin of the eyes. It's a sin of the heart. It's a sin of the mind. It almost always results in other sin, sins of the body. For men, this often takes the form of something visual like pornography. For women, it may involve that or it may involve something that's just sentimentalized or romanticized. Look, there's more than one way to break the seventh commandment in your mind. There's more than one way to say in your heart and in your mind, I wish I was married to a person that I'm not married to. It can be crude in the form of pornography. It can be celebrated by Hollywood in the form of romance. There's more than one way to break this commandment. It almost always results in other sin, and it always leads to death. Look what the book of Proverbs says, Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The answer is no. If you carry this fire, the whole chapter is about lust and adultery. If you carry this fire next to your chest, thinking it won't eventually consume you, you're wrong. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The end result of this sin played out in your life or my life is destruction. Why is it deadly? One last thought. It's enslaving. It's an enslaving sin. As much as any other sin that you might commit, it's enslaving. The more you give into it, the stronger it grows. The stronger it grows, the less you're satisfied with your own sin. You're no different than the heroin user who constantly needs a bigger hit, a bigger hit, a bigger hit. This is an enslaving sin. This is no new insight. We do not need the internet and the nastiness on the internet to figure this out. Thousands of years ago, people understood this. The great church father Augustine in the 4th century said, this is the progression of how lust works. You give in to lust... You do it enough, you create sinful habits, and those sinful habits result in compulsive sin. Sin you commit that you don't even think about. Sin just becomes your autopilot. You're just totally blind to the fact that you are sinning, and the beginning of it is giving in to lust and creating sinful habits and then finding yourself caught in this sin. How do you fight it? That's the question we've asked every week. We're going to ask it this morning. How do we fight the sin of lust? First of all, it begins by recognizing that lust is sin. Just admitting. We recognize lust as sin. We agree with God about this sin. We understand that in Exodus 20, the seventh commandment that says you shall not commit adultery doesn't just, doesn't only, doesn't exclusively include outward sin But according to Jesus, it also includes our hearts. The Tenth Commandment, do not covet, ends with the warning or the admonition. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse. This sin shows up twice in the Ten Commandments. 
we can go with the flow of culture and we can laugh at it and we can be entertained by it and we can be amused at it when it goes on in other people's lives as if that's not going to affect us. But we can see it as sin. If you're going to fight it, you're going to have to begin by seeing it as sin. Secondly, you're going to have to resolve to be serious about obedience. Nobody accidentally beats lust. Nobody just sort of ends up waking up one day and saying, oh, well, that's gone. It takes serious decision, a commitment, a resolve, some steel in your spine to say, I'm not going to give in to this sin. This summer, towards the end of the summer, our family went up to the panhandle. Uh, We went up to see my family and some friends of our family. Uh, We rented a campground. Hidden Falls Ranch Camp up in the Panhandle. It sits right on the edge of Paladura Canyon. Their summer camp season was over, and we went up and we rented. this a small camp, and we just stayed, and we did all the things you do at camp. We rode horses and uh, climbed rock wall, and we went hiking. We're at, right there at Paladura Canyon, and so one morning we woke up, and we thought we'd beat the heat. We hiked down into Paladura Canyon, and about the time we turned around to come back up, it's like 150 degrees, And so we're sweating up, making our way out of the canyon. And we needed a break, and the guide knew we needed a break, and so we stopped right here. It's this big white rock that juts out into the middle of Paladura Canyon. And you're almost up to the top of the canyon at this point. And so you can look out to the right, and the canyon just stretches on. It seems like forever. You can look to the left, and the canyon just goes forever that way. And this rock just sticks right out in the middle. Our group that was hiking was about... Six, seven adults and about six, seven kids. What do you think all the kids did the moment we got on this big rock cliff that sticks out over Paladura Canyon? They all walked right up to the edge. And what do you think every parent did? Grab ponytails, grab shirt collars, start screaming, get back, get back. This rock has stood here forever. A 30-pound kid gets on it. It's going to go crashing down. Get back. Get off of that rock. We understood the danger. That might look like a friendly hug or a, a loving hug. That's a death grip on my daughters to say, don't step backwards. As soon as the picture was done, they said, oh, Dad. You've had an experience like that at some point in your life. And what I'm saying to you is that childish impulse that says, I want to get as close to the cliff as I can. I want to dangle my toes off the edge. That same impulse lives in all of our hearts when it comes to sin. Naturally left to ourselves, we want to know where's the boundary. And secondly, we want to know how close can I get to that boundary. Boundary's right here. Can I get this close? What about this close? Can I put my toes over the boundary? Can I put one foot on the boundary if I keep one foot on this side of the boundary? That's what we do as human beings. And I'm telling you, when it comes to the sin of lust, when it comes to any sin, but especially when it comes to the sin of lust, that is a lousy strategy for dealing with sin. Rather than saying, how close can I get before I do something bad, and face a consequence, maybe we ought to just resolve to be obedient. Look what Jesus said, picking up in Matthew 5. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You know and I know that cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye will do nothing to stop sin in your heart. Won't stop it. It's not Jesus' point. Jesus knows that won't stop it. Jesus is using hyperbolic language, exaggerated language to say, you need to do whatever you need to do to deal with sin. Do whatever you need to do. Be serious about obedience. Look how Paul said it to the church in Ephesus. He said, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as would be proper among the saints. That shouldn't even be discussed among you, much less laughed at, much less acted upon. The church in Colossae put to death, therefore. Don't be entertained by it. Don't laugh at it. Don't try to tell me, but it's a really good show. The storyline is great. Have you seen the special effects? Just kill it. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Look what Paul told Timothy, a young pastor. He said, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Flee, run away. That's literally what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tried to put the moves on him. He literally ran away. It is literally what Paul wanted Timothy to do if he needed to do it. And it's literally what you need to do if you need to do it when it comes to the sin of lust. Run away. Put it to death. Be serious about obedience. Thirdly, how do we fight the sin of lust? We root our identity in Jesus. We refuse to believe the lie of secularism that says... Root your identity in your strongest sexual desire. And we say, no, my identity as a Christian will be rooted not in the sinful desires of the flesh, but in Jesus Christ. Root your identity in Jesus Christ. It's not easy. William Willimon says this, reigning in lust is particularly tough in a society that inculcates us in the notion that expression of desire is a right It's a duty for each of us, and the only danger is repression of desire rather than its expression. That's where we live. It's your duty and your moral right and obligation to live out any desire that you have. The danger is that you might repress that and call it sinful. You have a choice. You can say, my identity is going to be rooted in sexual desire, whatever's strongest at the moment, or it's going to be rooted in Jesus Christ. I love what Paul says to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth lived in a place and a time where there was all sorts of sexual immorality going on all around them. In 2 Corinthians 5, he told them, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You're not who you used to be. And he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's a bad list. And he says to the church in Corinth, that list used to describe some of you guys. The old you used to be on that list. But 
we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has done something in your life to make you new. You don't have to be identified by those old things that used to define you. You can find your identity in Jesus. That's what the Spirit is there to do in your life, which brings us to the last thought. How do we fight the sin of lust? We depend on the Holy Spirit for our sanctification. Galatians 5, Paul talks about sins of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. He does not talk about sins of the flesh and ways that you can be really, really good. Sins of the flesh and what the Holy Spirit is creating in you. What the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there is no law. And he contrasts them with the, the sins of the flesh. That's what the Spirit is there to do is to help us grow in sanctification. At times in your life that may feel like a losing battle, especially when it comes to the sin of lust. But the Christian has hope. Because the Christian has help. You look at these things and you say, by myself I can't do this. But as a Christian, you're not by yourself. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Jesus has not left his people as orphans. He's given us his presence. He's given us his spirit. And he intends to make us into the people that he would have us to be.